Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Realm presents a Degas Media production. The Dark Tome, Episode 2, featuring The Bread We Eat in Dreams by Catherine M. Valente. I wouldn't exactly call my life normal, but things have gotten a little weird since I started experimenting with this book called The Dark Tome. It started with this cranky old bookkeeper I know, Mr. Gussie. He helped me find the book, but it was me who first opened it first experimented with where it could take me. Most girls my age would be sneaking out to go find a boy. But me? I was breaking into a used bookstore. Well, not really breaking in. Gussie told me where he left the key. He's waiting, isn't he? When I say the book opened other worlds, I mean that literally. Last time we opened this thing up, I went to Italy 100 years ago and let out a demon bird that sings when people lie. If I had any sense, I would stay home now, but I can't. I don't want to. I just want to find... Mr. Gussie? The old fart was supposed to be in the hospital, recovering from surgery. Time coming, I'm gonna pay the big foot sister. Hey! Oh, 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 Cassie, what the hell are you doing sneaking up on an old man in the middle of the night? Sorry, I changed my mind. You came for the book, of course. That's good. I need you. The damn thing isn't working. What? Look at it. It's just sitting there like a piece of stale bread. Really? It doesn't talk to you? This is what I'm saying, Cassie. You have something special. I guess maybe because you're young. The book doesn't work the same with everybody. With you, the walls between this world and the next are a little thinner. Let me look at it. The tome was ancient. Timeless, maybe. When I picked it up, yes, there was something to it. Warmth. It started glowing and almost smelled like... Is that bread? (gasps) Hmm. (sighs) Why, bread of the most delicious kind. It's coming from the book. I can almost make out the words. That's the title of the next story. Yes. You're right. The Bread We Eat in Dreams, 
by Catherine M. Valente. Well, read on then. I'm hungry. Why don't you do the honors? You think it'll work? Try it, Mr. Gussie. In a sea of long grass and tiny yellow blueberry flowers, some ways off Route 1, just about halfway between Cobbs Cook Bay and Passamaquoddy Bay, the town of Sauvé-Majeur puts up its back against the Bald Moose Mountains. It's not a big place. Looks a little like some big old cannon shot a lot of houses and half-finished streets at the foothills and left them where they fell. The sun gets here first out of just about anywhere in the country, turn in all the windows bloody orange and fill in up a thousand lobster cages with shadows. Further up into the hills outside the village, but not so far that the post doesn't come regular as rain, you'll find a house all by itself in the middle of a tangly field of good red potatoes and green oats. The house is a snug little hall and parlor number with a moss-clotted roof and a couple of hundred years of whitewash on the stones. Sweet William and Vervain and Crimson Bee Balm wend out of the window jams. There's carrots in the kitchen garden, some onions, a basil plant that may or may not come back next year. You wouldn't know it to look at the place, but a demon lives here. Well, here we are. A rather cheerful part of Down East Maine, I guess. Looks it. Reminds me of a place I grew up. Only wrong time, I think. Look at that car. A 1966 Buick Roadmaster? So? Uh, Buick stopped making that car in uh, 1958. Oh. So we ain't exactly in Kansas anymore, kid. Well, now what? Dunno! The book looks blank. Wait. No. I think... Hmm. Says something about a door. Well, the last door I walked through brought me down to hell, and... Are we going to that cottage? It's just the front door to the home of a demon. Sounds like fun. Agnes G, the mailbox says. Agnes? Not a terribly scary name. Oh, my guests. What? But you're right on time. The bread just came out of the oven. We could smell it. Oh, I'm sure you could. You still have the smell of hell on you, don't you? That was another story. Mm, Hell is a large country, sweet. What's your name? Cassie. Cassie? Like Cassandra? Yes, that's right. Mm, Girl who saw too much. How about you, old-timer? Oh, folks know me as Mr. Gussie. 
look like you might be the great-great-grandson of those that burned me at the stake. <laughs> uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Please, you all come in. Make yourselves at home. It's a modest abode, but it stood a long time. Well, where to start? My real name is Gemigish Kiri Hallett, oh. and in hell, I was neither male nor female. But when I was banished from hell through the black door, I came out Agnes. And Agnes I've stayed. After about 500 years, I've gotten used to it. Wait, you were kicked out of hell? I showed up here before there was a town, pushed out of hell and through a red oak in the primeval forest that would eventually turn into Schism Street and Memorial Square and into a white howl of snow and frozen sea spray. I was naked. Branded with four spoked seals, wheels of banishment, and the seven psalms of hell. My hair was burnt off, and I had no fingernails or toenails. When my hair grew back, black, of course. The 16th century offered me quite a range of options for covering female skin from chin to heel, that made it easier to hide the diamond trident brand of Amducius. But my fingernails never came in. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? No one ever really noticed. Oh, and that's the tea. How do you like it? A bit of honey. Black. Naturally. Coming up. You may have noticed my bees buzzing as you came in. The lovelies. They're especially fat and happy this year. The currants came in as plump as marbles and just as shiny. <sighs> so, where was I? The ice and lightning lasted for a month after I came. And my footsteps marked the boundaries of the town to come my heels boiling the snow, my breath full of thunder. And oh goodness, was I hungry in those days. And when the hunger took me, I howled out the primordial word for stag into the whooping storm. And one would always come. His delicate legs picking through the drifts, his antlers dripping icicles. I ate my stag's hole in the dark, crunching the antlers in my teeth. Once, I called a pod of seals up out of the sea and slept on the frozen beach, the gray mottled bodies all around me. My heat warmed them, and they warmed me. In the morning, the sand beneath them rained liquid and hot. The seals cooked and smoking.
I knew I had to build myself a little house. So that spring I set to work. I put my ear to the mud and listened for echoes. The sizzling blood of the earth moved beneath me in crosshatch patterns, and on my hands and knees I followed the patterns until I found what I was looking for, a patch of earth that shared a cherry tree and a water line with the house of Gimme Gish Carryhallet in hell. You what? You found a place that intersects hell? Something like that. You see, hell is a lot like a bad neighbor. It occupies a space just next to Earth, not quite on top of it or underneath it, just to the side, on the margins. And you can find those margins if you know how to listen. When I found the spot, I spoke to the trees in Proto-Arcadian, and they understood me. They fell and sheared themselves of needles and branches. Grasses dried in a moment and thatched themselves, eager to please me. With the heat of my hands, I blanched sand into glass for the windows. I demanded the hills give me iron and clay for my oven. I growled at the ground to give me step peas and onions. Some years later, a little Penobscot girl got lost in the woods while her tribe was making their long return from the warmer south. She did not know how to tell her father what she'd seen when she found him again, having never seen a house like this one, with a patch of English garden and a stone well and roses coming in bloody and thick. She only knew it was wrong somehow, that it belonged to someone, that it made her feel like digging a hole in the dirt and hiding in it forever. I offered some food to the girl, a lump of raw red bleeding meat. I've always been a most excellent host, don't you agree? Before he marked my flesh with his trident, Amducius loved to eat my salted bread, dipping his great long unicorn's horn into my black honey to drink. (laughs) The child didn't want the meat I offered her, but that didn't bother me one bit. Everybody has a choice. That's the whole point. How's that tea? Oh, uh, lovely. That tea is the rarest chemum from the birth of China. It would never grow in this harsh climate, but for how I snarl at it to keep its sense through the bitter wind. Now, you want to know about the town, right? It belongs to me, of course. I called it to myself. Hi, this is Fred, one of the creators of The Dark Tome, and The Dark Tome is now on Patreon. Patreon allows you to directly support the work of The Dark Tome and keep it coming. Unlike many crowdfunding campaigns, it's sort of time unlimited. Uh, Patreon, you make a monthly contribution to support the efforts of the show, and you get, in return, first and foremost, our deep gratitude and appreciation for your support, but 
also rewards, um, such as all of the Dark Tome Season 1, all episodes as a director cut editions and ad-free. You also get bonus content, uh, such as The Derelict by William Hope Hodgson, The Nephews by Rick Hodela, and other good stuff as a special RSS feed only for Patreon supporters, which you can be one. Go to patreon.com slash darktome. Again, that's patreon.com slash darktome. All funds raised with Patreon go to support Dark Tome Season 2 coming out in 2018. Please help keep the stories going. Go to patreon.com slash darktome. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You see, a demon cannot function alone. If we could, then banishment would have no hurt. A demon craves company. I was a wolf abandoned by my pack. I could not help how I sniffed and howled for my littermates, nor how that howl became a magnetic pull for the sort of human who also loves order, everything in its place, all souls accounted for, everyone blessed and punished according to strict and immutable laws. It proved easier to find folks of the intensely religious persuasion than the ones who spoke my language. The first settlers were mostly French, banded together with whatever stray Puritans they picked up along the way north. (laughs) Those Puritans would spice the Gallic stew of Upper Maine for years, causing no end of trouble to me. I suppose, to be fair, I was in fact a witch and a succubus, and everything else they ever call me. That's no excuse for being such poor neighbors, when you think about it. So, I waited. I waited for Martin Leclerc and Melior Pelligan to raise their barns and houses, for Remy Monacue to breed his dainty little cow to William Chutterley's barrel of a bull, for John Cabot to hear disputes in his rough parlor. I waited for the papist Hubert Cesarin to send for both money and a pair of smooth brown stones from Save Major Abbey back home in Gironde and use them to lay out the foundations of what he dreamed could be the great cathedral of St. Gerard and St. Adelard the grandest edifice north of Boston. I waited for the Puritan Thomas Dryland to get drunk on Madeleine Liot's first and darkest beer and marched over to the Sazerin manse and knock him round the ears for flaunting his papist devilry in the face of good, honest folk. 
I waited for Dryland to take up a collection amongst the Protestant minority, and along with John Cabot and Quentin Pohl, to raise the frame of the free meeting house just across of what would eventually be called Schism Street, glaring down at the infant cathedral and pressed Quentin's serious young son, Lamentation Pole, into service as pastor. I waited, most importantly, for little Crespine Montanet to be born, the first child of Sauvé Major. I waited for the Dryland twins, Reformation and Revelation, <laughs> what names! and for Madame Leclerc to bear her five boys, for goodwife Wattam to deliver her redoubtable seven daughters and single stillborn son. I waited for Mathelin Minouflet to bring his gentle wife over the sea from Cluny, who arrived already pregnant, soon to bear a son sired by Mathelin's own brother, who had assumed him dead. I waited for enough children to be born and grown up, for enough village to spring up, for enough order to assert itself so that I could walk among them and be merely one of the growing noisy lot of new young folk fighting over Schism Street and trading gray damp wool for hard new potatoes. It was then I appeared. In Abelard in the Garden Square, the general marketplace, ruled wholly by an elderly, hunched Hubert Cesarin and his son, Augustine. I laid out my wares among the tallow candles and roasting fowl and pale bluish honey sold by the other men. Now, in those days, a woman selling in the market caused a certain amount of consternation among the husbands of Save Major. Young, wrestling Dryland though recently bereaved of his father, Thomas Dryden, whose heart had quite simply burst with rage when Father Simon Carpentier arrived from France to give mass, had no business at all sneaking away from the Protestant market across the street to snatch up a flask of Cesarin's Spanish Madeira. But there he was, and wrestling worked himself up into a fury when he saw me gathered together in black bonnet and luxurious assortment of breads. Under whose order do ye dare consort with the men here in the market? Pardon, sir. Try a bit of my cross buns. Here, with butter, fresh from a Jersey cow, as rich as the splendor in Spain. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's delightful. Are these raisins? By the grace of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, where in this forsaken land did ye find raisins? And what act of God, or his opposite, granted ye the smallest measure of sugar, and to dust it on the surface like it was a pittance? Speak, woman! Perhaps... It was his opposite indeed, sir. Would you like to take some home? Indeed. <laughs> Wrestling shut his mouth completely 
and meekly purchased a round of my bread, even though his mother Anne made a perfectly fine loaf of her own. In fact, he purchased a bit of braided French bread, just like the one before you. Please, do take a bite. Don't mind if I do. Mm. Mm. My, that tastes like heaven. Funny you should say that, as my previous occupation was as the baker of hell. Wait, really? Oh, yes. It had been my peculiar position, my speciality among all the diverse amusements and professions of Hades, which performs as perfectly and smoothly in its industries as the best human city can imagine, but never accomplish. Everything in its place, all souls accounted for, Everyone blessed and punished according to strict and immutable laws. I baked bread to be seen, but ultimately withheld. Sweet cakes to be devoured until the skin split and the stomach protruded like the head of a child through the flesh. Black pastry to haunt the starved mind. My ovens were cathedral towers of fire and onyx. My underbakers, Echolamdon and Echor, would pull out soft and perfect loaves with bone petals. But I also baked for my own table, where my comrades, Amducius, King of Thunder and Trumpets, Agares, Duke of Runaways, and his loyal pet, Crocodile, Samagina, Marquis of the Drowned, Countess Grimore, who rides upon a camel, and the magician king, Barbatos. We all gathered to drink the wines crushed beneath the toes of rich and heartless men and share my bread. I prepared the blood loaf of the great emperor's own infinite table, where, on occasion, I was permitted to sit and keep Count Andromalius from stealing the slabs of meat beloved of Celestial Marquis Oryx. In my long nights, in my long house of smoke and miller's stones, I baked the bread we eat in dreams. Strangest loaves, pies full of anguish and days long dead, fairy-haunted gingerbread, cakes wet with tears. The great Duke Gussian, the baboon lord of nightmares, came to me each eve and took up my goods into his hairy arms and bore them off to the pool of sleep. Those were the days I longed for in this lonely house with only one miserable oven that did not even come up to my waist with my empty table and not even Shag Shag, the weaver of hell, to make me the tea of separation from God and ravage me in the dark like any good neighbor should. Those were the days I longed for in my awful heart. The demon has no heart as you do, my dears. A little red fist in my chest, no. A demon's body is nothing but heart. Its whole interior beating and pulsing and thunder.
thundering in time to the clocks of pandemonium. And that's when it came to me. (laughs) The idea to bake my most perfect breads and bring them to Abelard in the garden. I would have my pack again. Here, between the mountains and the fish-clotted bay. I would build my ovens high and feed them all. Feed them all and their children until no other bread save that cooked from my infernal oven would sate them. They would love me abjectly, for no other manner of loving had worth. And? They burned me as a witch some 40 years later. What? Oh, you know how these country people are. Oh, yeah. They don't like things that's a little outside the ordinary. I think it was envy, mixed with hardship. As you might expect, it was one of the Protestants who did it. A descendant of wrestling Dryland, the pastor who had first confronted me in the Catholic market. You see, when asked, I would tell folk I was a member of a convent on the other side of these bald moose mountains. And I traveled into the Bay Country to sell the sisters' bread and lived in a little house as a hermit, consecrated to the wilderness in the manner of St. Viridiana or St. Julian. And who were they exactly? Products of my imagination, of course. (laughs) But it was enough to set the mind of the country priest, Father Simon, to ease. The story of the local hermitess was quite a relief, you see, since a woman alone is a kind of unpredictable inferno that might at any moment light the hems of the innocent young. (laughs) If they only knew. (laughs) Oh, the local Protestants spoke of Sister Agnes with great reverence, of how she had such a fine hand at pies and preserves. Couldn't hurt to let a little piety and thankful go and learn a bit from her. Even if she was a papist demoness, her shortbread would make you take communion just to get a piece. She's a right modest handmaiden, don't you think? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes! I was hoping Isabel could take our daughters Marie and Heloise to learn their letters from her. She sings so beautifully at Christmas Mass, didn't you hear? Poor Christophe Minouflet fell into a swoon when she sang the Ave. Why not let our girl Beatrice learn her scales and her octaves at her side? Oh, and and what of the garden? Don't you want to know what she does to the soil up there? Why, at my lot, it's more rock than dirt. Mm -hmm. Someone must learn how she makes her pumpkins swell and her potatoes glow with red hell. Have you seen the peas? Um. They come up almost before the snow can melt. And the blueberry bushes. By June, they groan with the weight of their dark fruit. Yes, we must let young Annabelle and Elizabeth and Jean and Martha go straight away and study her methods. And if a seed or two of those hardy crops should find its way into the pockets of our girls' aprons, well, such was God's will. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Thus did I find myself with a little coven of village girls all bright and skinny and eager to grow up, more eager still to learn everything I could teach. Not embarrassed to say that I wept with relief and the peculiar joy of devils. <laughs> I took them in, poor and rich, papist and puritan, gathered them round my black hearth like a wreath of still-closed flowers, and I opened them up. You see, Mary Beth, the way you spin the wool? 
If you use it like so. Oh, I see. Uh, like silk in your hands. Oh, Sister Agnes. Yes, Ruth. Please show me how you work the dough. Oh, yes. I'll show you the sweetest breads, darling, such that you rue the humble loaf of your mother. Sister Agnes, why is your Bible so much heavier than Father Adrian's? Whatever do you mean? His doesn't have the Gospel of St. Thomas or of Mary Magdalene. Mm -mm. Oh, yes, and one of the books of the two thieves. I never heard such on Sunday morning. Child, I doubt you would have. I doubt it. There are many bits of knowledge that your sister Agnes will share with you that you will never learn in church. Stay here with me, and I'll teach you all you might ever hope to know. I suppose you might say I got careless. Perhaps I did. But let it be said, a demon never has a large measure of care to begin with. The girls seated round my table like Grand Dukes made me feel like my old self again. And who can resist a feeling like that? Not many. And a demon hasn't even got a human's meager talent for resisting temptation, even if it may lead to their own immolation. It all started with Sebastian Cesarin. not like her, I tell you. She has the devil about her. You send our blessed Basile to her to learn lace, do you not? Only for I'll be damned if Marguerite Leclerc's brats would outshine a Sazarin at anything, and if Reformation Dryland's plain, sow-faced granddaughter made a better marriage than my own girl, I'd just have to lie down dead in the street from the shame of it. That doesn't mean I have to like it. Sounds like a mean spirit has come to reside in thee, dear wife. Not Sister Agnes. Think ye that, husband? Have ye not seen the way dear Basile comes home, smiling in a secretive sort of way, her breath quick and delighted? She does her work so quickly and so well that there is hardly anything left to do here. Isn't that what you send her for, woman? Be glad for ease, for it comes but seldom. It's unwholesome, a woman living alone out there. I wish Father Audrey would put a stop to it. Ah, but you know that won't be so. Before Father Simon, God rest his soul, passed from this earth, he confided to Father Audrian that he felt Sauvé Major harbored a saint. A saint? Father Simon called that succubus a saint? Peace on ye, woman. You know that Father Simon dreamed that the writ of St. Agnes's veneration might arrive from Rome one day, and with it, we could secure the finances to build the Cathedral of St. Gerard and Adelard, the dream of your own great-great-grandfather. What mean you, husband? That the demoness will help us build the cathedral? A cathedral requires more in the way of coin and time than even we Sazarins can manage. With such a great weight upon him, how can you expect Father Audrian to censure the hermit woman on which it all depends? You are right, husband. I shall speak no more of it. Of the saint. While all seemed right with the papists, with the Puritans, I had no such luck. Pastor Pole had no such hesitation. Lamentation Pole had raised his only son, Troth, to know only discipline and abstinence, and no other boy could begin to compete with him in devotion or self-denial. Pastor Pole's sermons in the free meeting house 
which he would rename the Free Gathering Church, bore such force down on his congregation that certain young girls had been known to faint away at his roaring words, he condemned with equal fervor. Harvest feasting, sexual congress outside of the bonds of marriage, woman's essential nature. All of these things are the work of the devil. And let me add to that, the ridiculous names of the Sazarins and other papist decadents saddle themselves with for they are not fooling God with their vanity. The grumbling might have stayed just that, grumbling, if not for the sopping wet summer of 09 and the endless bestial winter that followed. If it had not been bad enough that the crops rotted on the vine and sagged on the stalk, cows and sheep froze where they stood come December. And in February, Martha Chatterley discovered frantic mice invading her thin, precious stores of flour. Yet while the rest of the town suffered, my little garden thrived. In May, my tomatoes were already showing bright green in the rain. In June, I had bushels of rhubarb and knuckle-sized cherries. And in that miserable gray August... I sent each of my students home with a sack of onions, cabbages, apple squash, and beans. When Basile Cesarin showed her mother her treasure, her mother's gaze could have set fire to a block of ice. When Weep Not Dryland showed her father, wrestling's eldest and meanest child, elected Dryland, my winter store, his bile could have soured a barrel of honey. Schism Street was broached. Sebastian Sazarin, prodding her husband and her priest before her, walked out halfway across the muddy, contested earth. Pastor Pole met her, joined by elected Dryland and his mother, Martha and Makepeace Cheddarly, and James Cabot, son of the great judge John Cabot, On the one side of them stood the perpetually unfinished cathedral of St. Gerard and St. Adelard, its ancient clear story, window pane, and foundation stones standing lonely beside the humble chapel that everyone called cathedral anyhow. On the other, the clean steeple and whitewashed of the free-gathered church. Oh, she's a witch. She's a succubus. Why should we starve when she has the devil's own plenty, hmm? You know this song. It's a classic, with an old workhorse of a chorus. My girl Basile says she waters her oats with menstrual blood and reads over them from a gospel the father says no righteous soul should know. My mate says her cows give milk three times a day. Our Lizzie says she hasn't got any fingernails. She holds sabbats up there, and the girls all dance naked in a circle of pine. What? Oh, my. Well, my Bess says on the full moon, they're to fornicate with a stag up on the mountain while Sister Agnes sings the Black Vespers. If I ask my poor child, what will I hear then? I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Oh, I heard them down in the valley. I heard the heat of their whispers and knew they would come for me. And I waited, as I had always waited. It wasn't long. 
James Cabot made out a writ of arrest and make peace Cheddarly got a gang of goons to come up with him to the hill and drag me out of my house and install me in the new jail, which was the Dryland Barn. I didn't fight when they bound me and gagged my mouth to keep me from bewitching them with my devil's psalms. It did not actually occur to me to use my devil's psalms against them. I was curious. I did not yet know if I could die. The men of Save Major carried me in their wagon down through the slushy March snow to stand trial. I only looked at them my gaze mild and interested, their guts twisted under my hollow gaze, and this was further proof of my witchy nature. Ah, but it took much longer than anticipated. The Catholic and Protestant faction had never agreed on much, and they sure as spring couldn't agree on the proper execution of a witch's trial. Hanging, said Drylin and Pole. Burning! Insisted Sazarin and Leclerc. It should be one judge. Nay, a whole bench. I think we should bring forth testimony from our children. Oh, quite right, absolutely. Nay, we should judge her for the look in her eyes as the charges are read. Oh, yes, a, a, a water test. A needle test. Who will read the questions? What questions will they read? Dr. Pellerin should examine her. He who has been to school in Boston, where they know about such dark medicine. Nay, we should hear from midwife Sarah Wadma. She knows about curses that can be played on the female mind. Pastor Pohl should have the credit of ferreting out this devil. <laughs> Never! Tis a duty fit only for the church in Rome. What name should the town bear on its warrants? Sauve majeur. A nest of snakes and papistry. Oh. Help on high! A den of jackals and schismatics. Who oh. will have her garden when she is gone? Who will have her house? I, I want it! it. I, I want it! it. No, I want it! I, I should get it! I want it! She's mine! And I waited. I waited for my girls to come to me. And they did. First, the slower students who craved my approval. And finally, Basile and Weepnot and Lizzie Wadham and Bess Chatterley and the other names listed on the writ of execution, though no one had asked them much about it. I slipped my chains easily and put my hands to their little heads. Go and do as I have done. Go and make your gardens grow. Make your men double over with desire. Go and dance until you are full up of the moon. Are you really a witch? Ventured Basile Sazarin. <laughs> no. A witch is just a girl who knows her mind. I'm better than a witch. Look at the great orgy coming up like a rose around me. No night in hell could be as bright. And it was then that I took off my black wool gown before the young maids. They saw my four spoked seals and my wheels of banishment and the seven burnt psalms on my skin. They saw that I had no sex. They saw my long name writ upon my thighs. <gasps> wow. Oh, wow. 
They knew all in that barn, and they danced with their teacher in the starlight that sifted through the moldering hay. A certain revered minister, Goodman Mather, came to visit me while I waited for my trial. Goodman Mather? He was... He was behind the Salem witch trials, right? No. I read about it in school. The same. Pastor Poe managed not to wholly prostrate himself before the famous man, but took him immediately to speak with the condemned woman of whom that illustrious soul had heard of all the way down in Salem, a confirmed demoness beyond any doubt. Pastor Pohl's own wife, Mary in the manger, brought a chair to seat the honored minister upon, along with what cider and cheese they had to spare. Cider made from my ruby red apples, and milk from my own Jersey cow. But I digress. Goodman Mather looked upon me, a black-clad woman chained in a barn that made itself out to be a prison, my still gaze sounded upon his soul and boomed there, deafening. Art thee a witch, then? No. But not a Christian lady, either? No. How came you to grow such bounty on your land without the help of God? My dear Goodman Mather, there is not a demon in hell who has not won something quite other and more interesting. In the land where the Euphrates runs green and sweet, I was a grain god with the head of a bull. In the rough valley of the Tyne, I was a god of fertility and war with the head of a crow. I was a fish-headed lord of plenty in the depths of the Tigris. Before language, I was she who makes the harvest come, and I rode a red boar. The earth answers when I call it by name. I know its name because we are family. So, you admit your demonic nature? I would have admitted it before now if anyone had asked. They asked only if I'm a witch, and a witch is small pennies to me. I am what I am, as you are what you are. I want to live, as all creatures do. I cannot sin, so I've done no wrong. He wet his throat with my cider. Ah. His hand shook upon the tankard. When he had mastered himself, he spoke quickly and softly in the most wretched tones. He poured out onto the ground between him all of his doubt and misery, all his grief and guilt. I... Fear that I was wrong, that I sent innocent women and girls to death for only imagined afflictions against God. But what if they were not witches, and we, the accusers, were the ones who were the demons? I fear that all the blood of the innocents may weight me down when I reach the gates of paradise and bring me to the other place. I suppose he gave me all this because I proved to him his whole heart, his invisible world, 
I proved him a good man, despite the hanging hill in his heart. Tell me that I will know the kingdom of God in my lifetime. Tell me the end of days is near, for you must be the harbinger of it. You must be its messenger and its handmaiden. Tell me the dead will rise and we will shed our bodies like the shells of beautiful snails, that I will leave behind this horror that is flesh and become as light. Tell me again, I need never again be a man, that I need never err more, nor dwell in the curse of this life. Tell me you have come to murder this world so that the new one might swallow us all. I looked on him with infernal pity, which is, in the end, not worth the tears it sheds. Demons may pity men every hour of the day, but that pity never moves. No. 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 You. What are you doing? Behold me. Behold my darkness. The wheels of banishment. My seven burned psalms. Behold my whole name. Gimme Gish Carrihalet. Scrawled across my inner thighs and my sexless hollow. And let your flesh succumb to me. No. Yes, pastor. Behold me and feel me. Feel the reality of your flesh. Feel the arrow of your need. No. I feel the beauty of temptation, of succumbing. Do you succumb? Yes. Yes! 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 <sighs> well, they burned me at dawn before the free-gathered church could say anything about it. It was bad enough that they brought Minister Mather to their town. The Catholics of Save Major would not stand to let a Protestant nobody pass judgment on me, their very own witch. <laughs> there are a few witnesses. Father Audrienne, who made his apologies to Father Simon in heaven. Sebastian and Jerome Cesarin, with young Basile clutched between them. Marguerite Leclerc, and her husband Isaac. The church would handle their witch, and the schismatics, to be bold, could lump it. The Protestant had all those girls down in Salem. Rome had to have its due in the virtuous north. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily... Father Audrian tied me to a pine trunk and read my last rites. I did not spit or howl, but only stared down the priest with a gaze like dying. I said one word before the end, but no one understood it. Each of the witnesses lit the flame so that none alone would have to bear the weight of the sin. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. A year later, Sebastian Cesarin would insist, drunk and half toothless, hiding sores on her breast and losing her voice, 
would rasp to her daughter, insisting that as Sister Agnes burned, she saw a bull's head glowing through the pyre, its horns molten gold and garland in black wheat. Marguerite Leclerc, half mad with syphilis her husband brought home from Virginia, would weep to her priest that she had seen a red boar in the flames, its tusks made of diamond, its head crowned with millet and barley. Her own Sazarin, shipwrecked three years hence in Nova Scotia, his cargo of Madeira spilling out into the icy sea, would tell his blue-mouthed, doomed sailors that once he had seen a saint burn, and in the conflagration a white crow, its beak wet with blood, had flown up to heaven, its wings seared black. Father Audrian dreamed of my burning body every night until he died. And the moment my bones shattered into a thousand fiery fish, he woke up reaching for his Bible and finding nothing in the dark. <laughs> Father in heaven, I burned a saint alive. <sighs> More tea? Uh, yes. Please. I'll help myself to more honey. It's divine. I'm sure it is. Uh, uh, you died? It wasn't so bad. My house stood empty for a long while. Daisies grew in my stove. Moss thickened my great Bible. The girls I'd drawn close to me grew up. Bessiel Sazarin became so lovely men winced to look at her. She married a Parisian banker and never returned to Save Major. Weep not, Drylan bore eight daughters without pain or even much blood, and every autumn took them up to the top of the ball moose to howl at the night sky, while her husband slept in his comfortable bed. Lizzie Wadham's cloth wove so fine she could sell it in Boston and even New York for enough money to build a school where she insisted on teaching the young ladies lessons, the content of which no male was ever able to spy out. And whenever Weep Not went up to Sister Agnes's old house to shoo out the foxes and raccoons and keep the garden weeded, she saw a crow perched on the chimney or pecking at an old apple, or a bony old cow peering at them with a roomy eye, or a fat piglet with black spots scampering off into the forest as soon as she called after it. The cod went scarce in the bays. The textile men came up from Portland and Augusta with bolts of linen and money to build a mill on the river, finding ready buyers in Remembrance Dryland and Walter Cheddarly. The few Penobscot and Passamaquoddy left found themselves corralled into bare land not far from where one of their little girls had once run crying from a strange doorstep in the snow. The free gathered church declined into Presbyterianism, and the Cathedral of St. Gerard and St. Adelard remained a chapel. Despite obtaining a door and its own relic, the kneecap of St. Gerard himself before the Sazarin fortune wrecked on the New York market 
and scattered like so much sea foam. And me? I waited. I'd found burning to be much less painful than expulsion from hell, and somewhat fortifying, given the sudden warmth in the March chill. When they buried the charred stumps of my bones, I was grateful to be in the earth, to be closed up and safe. I thought of Prince Sidri, Lord of Naked Need, and how his leopard skin and griffin wings had burnt up every night, leaving his bare black bones to dance before the supper table of the upper kings. His flesh always returned so that it could burn again. When I thought about it, he looked a little like Thomas Drylin, with his stern golden face. And Countess Cremori, she had a body like Basile Cesarin, had hid under those dingy aprons. The Countess would ride her camel naked through the boiling fields to knock on my door when I had a door. When my burned bones dreamed, they dreamed of them all eating my bread together in one house or another, Agares and Lamentation Pole and Emdusius and Sebastian Cesarin and lovely old Echolamdon and Ecker serving them. With these dreams, I slowly fell apart into the dirt of Save Majeure. Sometimes a crow or a dog would dig up a bone and dash off with it, or a cow would drag a knuckle up with her cud. They would slip their pens or wing north suddenly, as if possessed, and before being coaxed home, would drop the scavenged bone in a certain garden near a certain dark, empty house. The lobster trade picked up, and every household had their pots. Schism Street got its first cobblestones and cherry trees planted along its route. Something rumbled down south and the Minoflay boys were all killed in some lonely field in Pennsylvania, ending their name. In the name of the war dead, Pastor Veritas Pole and Father Jude dug up the strip of grass and holly hedges between Faith My Joy Square and Adelard in the Garden Square and joined them into Memorial Square. The Dryland girls married French boys and buried whatever hatchet they still had biting at the tree. One day, Constant Cheddarly and Catherine Leclerc came home from gathering blackberries in the hills and told their mothers that they'd seen chimney smoke up there. Wasn't that funny? Deliverance Dryland and Restitute Cesarin, best friends from the moment one had stolen a black-gowned, black-haired doll from the other, started sneaking up past the town line, coming home with muffins and shortbread in their school satchels. When questioned, they said they'd found a nunnery in the mountains, and one of the sisters had given them the treats as presents, admonishing them not to tell. The mill went bust before most of the others, a canary singing in the textile mine of New England. The fisherman trade picked up, though, and soon enough, even Peter Mamacu had a scallop boat going, <laughs> despite having the work ethic of a fat house cat. A statue of Minerva 
made an honest woman of Memorial Square, with a single bright tourmaline set into her shield, which was promptly stolen by Bernard and Richie Lilliet. First Presbyterian Church crumpled up into Second Methodist, and the first pastor not named Pole, though rather predictably called Dryland instead, spoke on Sundays about the dangers of drink. Oh, and he also spoke of a lady up in the hills, old Agnes. Agnes? Don't you know Agnes? Oh, she's lived up there, uh, well, I don't know, just always has, right? <laughs> Making her pies and candies and muffins. A nicer old lady you couldn't hope to meet. Right modest, always wearing her buttoned-up old-fashioned frocks even in summer. Why, Marie Pellerin spends every Sunday up there digging in the potatoes and learning to spin wool like the wives in Save Major did before the mill. Jeanette Loliot got her cider recipe, but she won't share it round. We're thinking of sending Maud and Harriet along as well. Young ladies these days can never learn too much when it comes to the quiet industries of home. Mr. Gussie? Uh, what's that? The pages are getting foggy. I think you need to read some more. Uh, I, I need to, uh, ah, ah, yes, yes, that's, that's right. Uh, Far up into the hills above the stretch of land between Cobbs, Cook, and Passamaquoddy Bay. If you go looking for it, you'll find a house all by itself in the middle of a brambly field of good straight corn and green garlic. It's an old place, but kept up. The whitewash fresh and the windows clean. The roof needs mending. It groans under the weight of hen's bane and mustard and rue. There's tomatoes coming in under the windowsill in the kitchen. A basil plant that may or may not come back next year. Jenny Sazarin comes by Sunday afternoons for Latin lessons and to trade a basket of cranberries from her uncle's bog down in Lincolnville for a loaf of bread with a sugar crust that makes her heart beat faster when she eats it. She looks forward to it all week. It's quiet up there. You can hear the potatoes growing down in the dark earth. When October acorns drop down into the old lady's soot-colored wheelbarrow, they make a sound like guns firing. Agnes starts the preserves right away, boiling the bright, sour berries in her great, huge pot until they pop. Now, you see that? It means the berries are at just the right temperature. Heat helps them give up their sugar. Not unlike young girls. Do you know they used to burn witches here? I read about it last week. Oh, I've never heard that. They did. It must have been awful. I wonder if there really are witches. Pastor Dryland says there's demons, but that seems wrong to me. Demons live in hell. Why would they leave and come here? Surely there's work enough for them to do with all the damned souls and pagans and gluttons and such. Perhaps they get punished from time to time and have to come into this world. Oh, these are just about... What would a demon have to do to get kicked out of hell? 
Warm autumn sun lights up young Jenny's face, a gentle, bookish girl who looks so much like her ancestors, Hubert Sazarin and Thomas Dryland. Gemagish Kirahalit tightens her grip on her wooden spoon, stained crimson by the bloody sugar it tends. The demon shuts her eyes. The orange coal of the sun lights up the skin, and the bones of her skull show through. Perhaps for one moment, only one, so quick it might pass between two beats of a sparrow's wings, she had all her folk around her, and they ate of her table and called her by her own name and did not vie against the other. And for that one moment, she was joyful and did not mourn her separation from a god she had never seen. Oh, Auntie Agnes, can I have some of your cream? I so love your cream. You may, child, anytime. The sun goes down over Bald Moose Mountain and the lights come on down in the soft black valley of Sauve Majeure. I guess that's the end. Sure you don't want to stay for another cup? What did you say your name was? Oh, yes. Cassandra. The girl who saw too much. I can help you see more. So much more. What was the word? Pardon? When they were about to burn you. What was the word? Stay for another cup of tea. I'll tell you. I don't know that I can. I can't. Right? The story's over. Oh, dear Cassie. I think your story is about to begin. Nope. You're right, Cassie. It's high time we was leaving. I would like to know. You can teach me things? About the Dark Tome? Oh, yes. The Dark Tome is thicker than the Bible and more interesting still. You only need to understand the language beyond words. Goodbye! <laughs> Mr. Gussie! What the hell? You can't be spending too much time with a demon, Cassie. She could have... would have shown me things. I think you learned enough from just the story she told, don't you think? I learned that men are jerks, but I'm pretty sure I already knew that. Look, now I'm only looking out for you. You don't know where this book can take you. Maybe I do, and you just won't let me go. You're just a girl, Cassie. And you're not my dad. No. But you also don't know what you're trifling with. You know what I had to do to get this book? You know what it does to people? No. No. Well, maybe we'll tell that story next. You promise? Yeah. Come back tomorrow. <sighs> Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. 
And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. You've been listening to The Dark Tome, a Degas media production presented by Realm, produced by Fred Greenhalge and William DeFries. Full cast and crew credits, behind-the-scenes photos, and transcripts at thedarktome.com. That's thedarktome.com.